Thank you for listening to the River Oaks Community Church Podcast. Today, Pastor David Beatty concludes his short teaching series on marriage with a sermon entitled, Building a Healthy Marriage. Are there biblical keys to a healthier, happier marriage? We believe there are. This sermon presents steps to building a more healthy marriage. The scripture readings are Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, and Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. Last week, we began a short uh, two-week series on the topic of marriage, and uh, we'll continue that today. I'd like to start out, though, with uh, what some kids have had to say about marriage. Now, this was a question and answer kind of a thing in which some elementary age kids were asked their views, their understanding on marriage, and I want to share with you some of their responses. To the question, how do you decide who to marry, 10-year-old named Kirsten said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it way beforehand, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) What is the right age to get married? Camille, age 10, says 23 is the best age because you know the person forever by then. (laughs) Freddie says no age. He's six years old. No age is good to get married at. you got to be a fool to get married. (laughs) Derek, age 8, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? You might have to guess based on whether they're yelling at the same kids. (laughs) Laurie says to what do you think your mom and dad have in common? Both don't want no more kids. (laughs) What do most people do on a date? Lynette, age eight, says dates are for having fun and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. (laughs) Martin, age 10. On the first date, they tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested for a second date. (laughs) Nine-year-old Craig says, what would you do on a first day that was turning sour? I'd run home and play dead. The next day, I would call the newspaper and make sure they wrote about me in all the dead columns. (laughs) When is it okay to kiss someone? Pam, seven-year-old, says, when they are rich. Kurt, age seven, says, the law says you've got to be 18. I wouldn't want to mess with that. (laughs) And finally, how would you make a marriage work? Rick, age 10, says, tell your wife she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) Now, you may think no kid would ever say that. These were given by our kids outside of Kids Rock last week. Your children, (laughs) your children, right after service. (laughs) I'm joking about that last part. (laughs) Marriage is a sensitive subject, and on a serious note, I'm always a little sensitive to those in our church who have been through or are going through the pain of separation and divorce. I hope you'll always find that our church is a place where you will find compassionate care and unconditional love, and that is one reason we offer a biblical teaching ministry here called Divorce Care, and it happens to start up on September the 10th, and details in your bulletin. You can find out about it there. Uh, If you're single, I hope you won't tune out because you might be married sometime. And even if not, you will surely have occasion to counsel or uh, provide some hope and encouragement to friends or family who are married and may go through the challenges that almost all of us who are married 
experience at some time or the other. On the screen, you'll see the words from Genesis 2, verses 18 to 24, a foundational passage about God's creation of humanity and marriage. And in verse 18, we read these words. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now this next verse is, in my opinion, the foundational verse about marriage in all the Bible. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That verse appears in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Looking ahead to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, here the Apostle Paul gives his longest teaching on the subject of marriage. And you notice as he's, he's drawing this lengthy teaching to a close, he comes back to the verse we just read in Genesis 2.24. As a summary of his teaching there, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, end of quote. He goes on to write, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Remarkable statement, if you think about it. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, last week, we looked at some of the reasons for which God created marriage. And we saw that one was for partnership in, in serving God together, doing his work, obeying his word. We saw that one purpose for marriage was that while challenging, it provides a wonderful opportunity for growth in becoming more like Jesus. And then we saw that it really is intended by God to be a reflection of the relationship of Christ and the church. And that's what the words on the screen mean when Paul says it's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This morning, I'd like to give some practical steps toward a more healthy marriage for those of you who are, are married. Some things that I think can help strengthen our marriages. And the first one is this. To see marriage as God designed it, not a mere contract, but as a covenant. In the book of Malachi chapter 2, words you see on the screen, the prophet Malachi is really delivering a rebuke against the leaders of Israel, the male leaders of Israel in particular in this passage. And he's specifically addressing the priests in this particular passage. And he begins in verse 13 by saying, 
you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, you're complaining that God is not listening to you. But you say, why does he not? That is, why does God not accept my offering? Why does he not answer my prayers? Why is God not listening? And then he gives the answer to them. Because the Lord was witness to you between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. And note the word covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now these are strong words. You think about the time in which they were written, about 400 years before Christ. Time when women had little in the way of rights in their culture as compared to men. And the men are being rebuked and told in verse 15 and again in verse 16, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. It's this passage that lets us know God's view of a marriage is that of a covenant. Now, in our American understanding, we typically think of marriage as just a contract between two people, like the picture you see on the screen, that linear relationship between a wife and a husband, a contract. And we might uh, decide to, to void or cancel the, the contract, perhaps. A covenant might be depicted this way, as a triangle with God at the top as the, the witness of the vows. And this is why in a Christian ceremony of marriage, vows are taken and the vows are taken before God. God is the witness of this covenant agreement uh, between wife and husband, husband and wife in marriage. I think seeing, for those of you who are married or think you may one day be, seeing your marriage this way really elevates the importance of marriage in the eyes of God, seeing it as a covenant. Now, if we take this view of marriage, it is not a mere contract, it's a covenant that's made before God, it also makes sense that we can grow closer to each other as couples in marriage, closer as husbands and wives by growing closer to God. As you see the diagram below, as husband and wife each move up this triangle, this covenant to God, they become at the same time closer to each other. And I think that gives hope to a struggling marriage. If you remember the passage we read a moment ago from the book of Malachi, God says there's a portion of his spirit in their union. That says that in some mysterious way that I really don't understand, God is at work in the marriage union. And by drawing closer to him, we can at the same time draw closer to each other. One of the first things I'd recommend to a couple who was struggling, and if they were both believers, is to really draw closer to God, to begin seeking God together. Now, this also informs the way we in our church, our pastors here at River Oaks, approach premarital counseling. And our view is maybe a, a little bit radical, 
on this, but I want to ex tell you what it is and explain why we do this. We view the time of preparation for marriage as moving up that triangle. When, when woman and man who are engaged to be married will grow closer to God as they're growing closer to each other. And so we encourage couples getting ready for, for a wedding to begin learning to pray together, to read the Bible together. What happens in our culture today oftentimes is that couples put far more effort into the wedding ceremony itself. Where is it going to be? What's it going to be like? How's it going to be? They put a lot of effort into that with relatively little effort in moving up toward God together and in investing in that lifelong covenantal relationship. And so when somebody comes to one of the pastors on our, our staff here, and there are several of us ordained and licensed to do weddings and sign that marriage license in the state of North Carolina, we want them to have the best possible foundation for a healthy marriage. And so we want them to grow spiritually during that premarital time and to have some counseling. Now, I said something to the effect that our view is a little bit radical. Here's the radical part. If couples come to us who are living together, we ask them to move apart between that time and the time of the wedding. If they're engaged uh, in sex, we ask them to abstain between that time and the time of the wedding. And you may wonder, why would we do that? And that's the radical thing. A lot of people don't like that, especially in a time when, uh, based on what I've read, the majority of couples the majority in our culture today in the U.S., they live together before marriage. That's a, the majority view. So why would we do that? Because we want your premarital time to be a time of moving closer to God together. And it is inconsistent to be growing spiritually toward God on the one hand, and at the same time, living in something that is deliberate disobedience to him on the other hand. Now, I want to add something else to this point, and it's not a scriptural thing, but it's based on data and on research. On the screen, you will read a part of a page from a book called The Ring Makes All the Difference. The book is written by Glenn Stanton, who is a Christian author and speaker. But the book is not a biblical teaching about marriage. It is a compilation of a bunch of research and data about marriages, and in particular, folks who first lived together before marriage. And here's part of his conclusion, and I'll give you uh, his name and the book name at the end of the message. He writes, sociologists investigating this question, working from two leading schools of theology, the universities of Chicago and Michigan, tell us clearly that the expectation of a positive relationship between cohabitation and marital stability has been shattered in recent years by studies conducted in several Western countries, including Canada, Sweden, New Zealand, and the United States. Their data indicates that people with cohabiting experience who marry have a 50 to 80% higher likelihood of divorcing than married couples who have never 
cohabited, a Canadian sociologist explains. Contrary to conventional wisdom that living together before marriage will screen out poor matches and therefore improve subsequent marital stability, there is considerable empirical evidence demonstrating that premarital cohabitation is associated with lowered marital stability. After surveying the data on this question, another leading scholar contends that the only conclusion one could honestly reach was to categorically reject the argument that cohabitation contributes to stronger marriages. And the word cohabitation is merely a reference to living together before marriage. Now, I don't share that to, to condemn anyone here who say, that's, that's my experience, we lived together before we got married. There is forgiveness, there is always grace from the Lord and in our church. But I want to tell you why we, we take this position that some consider extremely radical. The good news is whether you've lived together before you're married or not, there's grace, forgiveness, a new start in the Lord, and by growing spiritually together, we can strengthen our marriages. Number three, step toward a more healthy marriage. Accept the reality that marriage calls for self-denial, sacrifice, humility, and perseverance. Looking back to the book of Malachi chapter 2, this rebuke that the prophet gives from God through the prophet to these leaders, to the, the priests, the leaders of Israel. So guard yourselves and your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Again in verse 16, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The implication is that faithfulness to one's spouse in marriage will require deliberate effort, intentional effort. Now, this is true, really, of all close relationships. It's true of your, your roommate in college. It's true of your family members and your, and your friends. It's going to require deliberate effort and, at times, sacrifice, self-denial, perseverance, unconditional love. But the marital relationship is unique in that it requires this in a very significant, significant way. I think we need to understand a couple of things about um, God's goal for us as human beings and how that relates to our marriages. The first is this. God's greatest goal for your life and mine, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is not our personal happiness, ideal circumstances in life, or self-fulfillment. His highest goal for you and me as Christians, is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's stated in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and verse 29, when the Bible says God predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So if you want to know what God's will for your life is as a Christian, is that God wants to shape you, to form you, to the likeness of Jesus, so that progressively, year after year, day after day, you and I live more like Jesus would live. We treat people the way Jesus would treat them. We're conformed to the likeness of his son. That's God's great goal for us. Secondly, we should understand this. 
this process of being conformed to the likeness of Christ inevitably will require persevering through difficulty, trial, challenges. The Apostle James tells us this when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter various trials, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, to be mature and complete, you must learn to persevere faithfully to God through trials, through challenges, through difficulties. And the third thing we need to know is this. Marriage of all relationships is particularly challenging. Now, I know some here may not have realized this yet. Maybe you have just gotten engaged, right? And I think that's true of you, isn't it, Abby? All right, you just got engaged, and all you want to do is talk on the phone two or three hours every night. If, if, if he's not here, wherever he is, that's all you want to do. You have these euphoric feelings, these emotional feelings. Those continue into the wedding. They continue in the honeymoon. Counselors say they continue for, for maybe a year and a half or two years. And then guess what? You don't want to talk for two or three hours every night, necessarily. You come home from work and say, I'm tired. I don't want to talk about anything. I just want to sit and watch TV. This is where the commitment comes in, and this is where the spiritual growth through the reality of the challenges comes in. Marriage is challenging, and it's a unique relationship in which each person at times is going to have to sacrifice deny themselves, persevere, and demonstrate unconditional love. And the model in all of this, the model for us in all of this, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We look at what Jesus has done for us, we realize we're being called to be like him, and that's the way we treat one another in marriage. In marriage of all relationships, it's the only relationship I can think of in the Bible that tells us it's to be a reflection of Christ in the church. Now, the passage you'll see on the screen from the book of Philippians makes this even more clear in a very practical way. The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians here, and he's going to use the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus laying down his own life on the cross, as a model for the way we treat other believers. And he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Personally, I think sometimes that's easier to do with people, other people, people in the church than it is in my own marriage. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, or this attitude which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you hear what's being said. Take the example of Jesus. He took our hell so we could share his heaven. He laid down his life so we could have his eternal life. He suffered on the cross, there on the cross, 
the judgment and the righteous wrath of God toward our sin was poured out on him as if he were guilty of all, he took our place so that through our faith in him, we are reconciled to God, we are forgiven, we are brought eternally into a relationship with God. And then throughout the rest of our time on earth, we follow him and we're being conformed into his likeness. And so Paul the Apostle here again gives us the model of Jesus as an example uh, for the way we relate to each other. In the book of Ephesians, he relates this specifically to marriage. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's taking the giving of Jesus' life on the cross as a model for the way we treat our spouse in our marriages. Recognize singles, you're thinking about getting married at some point, college students, those who are married. Marriage uniquely requires this kind of self-sacrifice, laying down our lives for, for another person because the model for us is Jesus and his work in the gospel. Number four, step toward a more healthy marriage. Prioritize times of praying together. Over the years, I've had a lot of opportunities to, to meet with men and talk about their spiritual lives, their spiritual growth. I found that there are not a whole lot of Christian men in Christian marriages who pray regularly with their wives outside of praying before a meal or putting a child to bed. But there's something about praying together that will bring strength into a marital relationship it brings closeness. It brings love. It brings to the surface, frankly, things that need to be dealt with if you're praying together so that apologies come a little more quickly. Repentance comes a little faster if we're committed to praying together. It's hard to pray with somebody when you're resenting them. Have you ever discovered that? You're really, really angry at them. On the screen, you'll see a quote from Brad Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project, who writes, we find that probably the most powerful predictor of a happy marriage on the religious side of things is when a couple prays together outside of just grace and meals. I want to highly, highly recommend this to you, that you take five minutes a day and just join, those of you who are married here, Join hands together, pray for each other, for your spiritual growth, your spiritual lives. If you have children, pray for your children, God's blessing, God's wisdom, God's direction. It will strengthen marriage. You will often not feel like doing it and feel like you don't have time. Five minutes a day can go a long way towards strengthening your marriage by praying together. And then finally, last uh, point. Watch your words and express appreciation often. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians chapter 4, before he gets into chapter 5 about marriage, says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Harsh words. Grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And again, he uses the model of Christ for human relationships as God in Christ forgave you. So treat one another. So show grace to one another. So forgive one another. Uses the model of Christ. Book of Proverbs says there's one whose speech is like the piercing of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Harsh words spoken in anger in a marriage can be very difficult to overcome. They're not easily forgotten. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to do what Malachi the prophet told the Israelite men to do. Guard yourself in your spirit and don't be faithless. Guard yourself in spirit, he says, don't be faithless. Part of that is guarding what we say in our relationships. Before we close, I want to give you a um, 30-day challenge starting today and going through October the 2nd. This comes from Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, who's a Christian writer, speaker, and um, she says that she has given this challenge to many, many couples over the years and seen it to be transformative in marriages. And I'm going to try it. My wife's here. I hope she's going to try it. It'll work a lot better that way. It's a 30-day challenge. Number one, and this, this isn't too impossible, I don't think. For the next 30 days, don't say anything negative about your spouse to them or to anyone else about them. Nothing negative. 30 days, could we do that? Nothing negative about your spouse to them or to anyone else about them. This one's a little harder. Every day for the next 30 days, encourage your spouse by expressing something you admire about him or her. This will inquire some thought, something you admire. You can't use the same one every day. <laughs> you, you, you have to come up with something new. That's why I think it would be a challenge. Maybe near the end of the month you could recycle, recycle one or two but that they might not remember. But something you admire every, every day is going to require some thought. And one word of advice here, we've experienced this from time to time in our marriage. Don't hide an insult in a compliment. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Hey, your breath is not nearly as bad today as it usually is. <laughs> or, hey, you finally did a good job on the yard this week. Thank you. We pastors have experienced that sometimes. Somebody will leave church and you get, Pastor, that was a good sermon today. I, I didn't, didn't fall asleep today for the first time this year. I would just, and I just wanted to encourage you and tell you that. <laughs> don't hide an insult and a compliment. So the next 30 days, don't say anything negative about your spouse to them or to someone else. Every day for the next 30 days, encourage your spouse by, by expressing something you admire about him or her. You may want to take a picture of the screen. You might want to write this on your bulletin. You might want to put it in your phone as a daily reminder. 30-day encouragement 
challenge. Finally, before we close, um, I mentioned a book called The Ring Makes All the Difference. This is the book that is uh, compiled research about uh, why it's best to wait until marriage, to live together. Uh, the second book is one I did not quote, but it's called The Good News About Marriage. And it, again, like the first book, is mostly the results of research, not so much a Bible teaching book. But here's, here's the general conclusion of this author, that the, the rate of divorce in the United States of America is not so high as we have been told in the church over the last 20 years, nothing approaching 50%. Uh, they've combed through years' worth of research and found it significantly lower, and for those who attend churches, lower than average. And their whole, whole thesis in their book is that we, we need hope that our marriages can survive and improve. And uh, it's a good and very interesting book, uh, research about marriage. The final book, Love and Respect in Marriage by Emerson Egrich, is one that um, Pastor Sonny on our staff has recommended often in his uh, marriage counseling, and so I would recommend it to you. Would you join me now as we pray together? Father, I pray for those here uh, who may be hurting because of where they are in life now at this point. Perhaps have recently gone through a divorce and the pain is still there. Would you bring your healing father? Would you bring the deep knowledge of the great love of Jesus demonstrated for us in his death on the cross? The awareness of your healing power as well as your forgiveness. Father, for those here whose marriages are struggling terribly right now and have no hope, would you bring hope today through the power of the Holy Spirit? And most important of all, Lord, if there is one here today who would say, I'm not sure I'm really a Christian. I'm not sure there's been a time that I truly accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord and became his follower. Would you especially work in that person? Would you show that person that now is the time to simply pray, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Make me your follower this day and forever. Amen.